So good to be with you all. This sweet morning as we hear of the Lord's saving grace. I, I love the resonance between someone who has struggled and battled and uh, lived in ways that show sin's power and God's rescue and stronger power to free them, as well as the sweetness of a child raised in a home that knows Christ from an early age or knows about Christ from an early age and trusts in him. And I find the, the resonance between the two, that God saves without regard to Christian home or upbringing or sin, he saves all because we are all sinners, no matter how good or tragic our past. Uh, what, a, what a great God we serve, and what a blessing to hear those testimonies. Thank you for sharing those. I know that's hard for some of you. Uh, some of you, you would rather do almost anything than share a testimony in public. And I think one of the sweet joys in our church family is those times in which the Lord clearly moves and preaches the message of his grace uh, through the mouths of his regular people, because we're all regularly just sinners. Matthew chapter 22, Jesus speaks to the issue of the resurrection because he's asked. So this is a, it's an appropriate symbol, isn't it? Everyone who gets buried in the baptismal waters also gets, yeah, we don't leave them in. We don't leave them buried. We would have another burial a few days later if we did. We, we, we raise them out of the water, and it's a symbol of Christ's resurrection. We come to this text today, and there is a group of spiritual leaders within Israel, and I say spiritual in the sense of religious, not necessarily were they truly saved, called the Sadducees. Some of you may be familiar that this group of people kind of uh, um, the noble class, generally speaking, the wealthy and well-off, they would have been theologically the liberal of the day. They doubted the resurrection, they doubted the miracles, they doubted the existence of angels, and they come to Jesus with one of their proof texts, or maybe proof arguments, we might say, on why the resurrection is silly and nonsense. And so they present to Jesus a question that's, that, that's intended to show the ridiculousness of a resurrection and thereby prove uh, to the Pharisees who were more conservative and kind of the holding the standard of the Old Testament dogma. And, and these two religious societies are using Jesus because no matter what he says, he's probably going to disappoint and anger one group of people and their loyalties. And this question about the resurrection then plays the central role in Jesus' teaching but if we, if we lead into the introduction, we'll see in verse 23, the Sadducees come to him. They ask a question saying, teacher, Moses said this. And if you go back to the, the Old Testament law, there's this issue of leveret marriage, and it sounds totally foreign to our culture. So here's, here's the idea that the family line was incredibly important, the heritage of the family name that would usually go down through the firstborn. So the firstborn in this case marries a young lady, she, she is unable to conceive, and then he dies. In this case, the second brother was supposed to help her have a child for the sake of the oldest brother in order that his inheritance and name, and particularly in the Old Testament, you remember the promise, the, the blessing that came through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and it goes down to um, the, the blessed sons of these patriarchs. Well, the idea would be that the family inheritance, blessing, name, and kind of patriarchy would go through that oldest son. 
So brother number two dies. No kid. Brother number three has to step up to the plate. He marries her. No kid. And we go down, and there's seven of these consecutive marriages with no children. Finally, in death, whose wife will she be? Because, of course, they have a theology that there's going to be marriage in, in the afterlife. Well, actually, they assume that, and their point is, this is ridiculous. This is silly. There's going to be a fight over this woman in heaven because heaven's dumb. There is no heaven, is the point. So Jesus responds to the, this. Uh, again, it's a setup to show how silly the idea of an afterlife is, how silly the idea of a resurrection is. And frankly, if you're to jump into their worldview, that does kind of sound troubling. This one lady with seven husbands in heaven, that's creepy. But that was, that was exactly the point. Through uh, the, the argument to nonsense, you prove the silliness of the belief held. Jesus gives two responses. Look with me in verse 29. <clears throat> well, I shouldn't say he gives two responses. He gives a response, and then it has two parts. He says, very clearly, you are wrong. Okay? They're wrong for multiple reasons, and we'll unpack those, but he basically suggests these ideas. You don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. So there are two theological problems that they have as they come and, and give Jesus Christ this argument for no resurrection. And, and I think we could say with Jesus' answer, no bodily resurrection. Not just being resurrected to the idea of a spirit or, or being some type of immaterial ghost, but the idea of a physical resurrection in which there'll be real people. Jesus says, if you don't believe in this, you are wrong. So I just want to ask you the question, how valuable is the resurrection for your faith? How valuable is it for your day-to-day -day life? If you were to imagine a culture in which no one believed in the resurrection and it did not exist, would that change the way you live today? Would it alter your behavior? Maybe just a, a simple analogy. If I were to tell you that for the next seven days until we meet together next Sunday morning, that nothing you did would have any consequences. No lasting results, and no one but you would remember what you did. How would your week change? Some of you would go out and do things you shouldn't do. Some of you would find that totally demotivating. You go out and you weed your garden, and you wake up next Sunday morning, and there's weeds in it again. So why weed? Right? Like, why waste your time? You're, you're working to, to read a book that's helping you rethink some things in life, maybe become a better manager at work and, and work for that promotion, and you realize that every page read this week is gone. Why read? And all of a sudden, like, all of the reasons you have for doing something, if it vanishes by the end of the week, you, you don't do what you normally do. Maybe if you don't care about consequences, you behave differently. You drive 100 miles an hour everywhere you go because Sunday's coming and it's all gone. It doesn't matter if you get eight tickets. It just doesn't matter because it's gone. It would, it would change your behavior, wouldn't it? I mean, I know for me, it'd be like sleep in, take it easy, and chill because nothing matters. It'd be hard to be motivated to do anything. Turn it around, though. Imagine that everything you did this week was amplified times 100. Your salary... You're reading, 
your investment in your children. You have a child that's kind of having some rough time and you need to spend some time with them fixing some behavior. You spend an hour with them, it's like 100 hours of instruction. Working in your garden, all of a sudden that one hour of weeding, now your garden is flawless. It was like 100 hours of labor done in an hour. What would you do this week? How would you invest your time? Cultivating some relationships in your family, hopefully. Maybe spending some time sharpening your mind. Maybe spending some time reading scripture. I mean, if one hour of scripture reading equals 100, please tell me you're going to read your Bible. And at the end of the week, you get to keep it all. I mean, just imagine this with a teenager where you pay them to clean your room. All right, clean their room. I mean, you could have them clean your room too. Just pay them. So they say, I will give you, sometimes it times 100, so you would pay them five bucks an hour to clean your room. You're going to pay them 500 bucks an hour to clean your room. Your socks will be sorted alphabetically by brand, <laughs> right? Because how valuable is that time and how much worth is it? Okay, so if we can recognize that our hope and expectation of the future transforms behavior today, then we recognize that talking about the resurrection isn't simply a matter of intellectual fantasy. It's not simply a theological discussion for, for your pastoral eggheads who want to talk in seminary classes about the, the nature of the resurrection body. This is something that changes your everyday life. Because, in fact, I would suggest to you that no matter what earthly gain you get this week, it is a pale comparison to the eternal gain of heaven. And if you believe in a resurrection, you hold that clearly and tightly. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you're like the man who everything on Sunday gets erased. It's like you have no motivation, no purpose, and no ultimate outcomes are achieved if you don't believe in the resurrection. That's the Sadducees. Can you imagine what their spiritual lives look like? There's no resurrection. There's no hope in the afterlife. There's no kingdom in which they'll be raised from the dead and live in a glorious afterlife with a king. There's nothing. You end your life, period, end of sentence, book over, the end. Boy, that had to just destroy hope. Brings a whole new context to suffering. Because if all of our suffering is in this life and there's no afterlife, Paul says we have all, are all men to be pitied. We come to this text, and I, I think there's two essential points that are worth our consideration that Jesus teaches the Sadducees. The first one is, the power of God is necessary to understand the afterlife. You could say it this way, God gives his people glorious life. God gives his people glorious life. The belief in the resurrection is really a belief in the power of God to raise you from the dead, to give you victory over death, and to give you something better than you currently possess. It is a belief in the power of God to accomplish these things. Come to the text again, verse 30. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given a marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. The problem with the Sadducees is they assume that at best, in their argument, the afterlife is merely just a continuation of the present life. In other words, the marriage you have on this earth will be the marriage you have in heaven. That's the complexity of having seven husbands for that lady. Right? It's just the same. It's just like, you know, next chapter, same book. 
And Jesus says, no, you actually are denying and misunderstanding the scriptures. You don't know what you're talking about. You are wrong. The power of God is at play to transform us to be like the angels. So what is he talking about? I think Luke, in the parallel passage here, explains a little further what Jesus said. Let me read it for you in Luke 20, 35 and 36. He says, Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So when we go to the passage in Luke, Jesus explains a little more fully that the power of God is the power to make it so that the believer never dies. And in fact, he's made like the angel in the sense that he's unkillable. He has eternal, eternal life. And in fact, the reality is that the scriptures say right now, today, in this moment, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ already possesses eternal life. There is a sense in which you, if you are a genuinely saved believer in Jesus Christ, cannot be killed. Physically, your body might die, but the Bible says that as soon as we are absent from this body, we are present with the Lord. Eternal life, by definition, is eternal. It does not get taken away from God or the believer to whom he has been given or who is given life just because our mortal body perishes. But the point of Jesus is actually startling here, and some of you might find it actually disappointing. There's no marriage in heaven. Why? Why is there no marriage in heaven? Think of you if you're tracking with the idea of Luke and the fact that no one dies, then what Jesus Christ is saying is that the need for marriage and the purposes of reproduction are not necessary for heaven. When Adam and Eve are first made in the Garden of Eden, go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, they are told to replenish or to fill the earth because it was not filled with people. When we get to heaven, all of the redeemed and all of the ages are populating it. It will be filled with the glory of God and his people. There will be no need for procreation in heaven. This also means that there will be no need for moms and dads. Right? Like we're, we're not having new babies that need to be cared for and instructed and cultivated in the love of the Lord because they will all be his people. There will be no new families in heaven. So the need to, to reproduce is gone. So the center of the family, in fact, Luke says that everyone in heaven considers God their father and, and we are his sons. The protection and the provision and the leadership and the instruction that comes from a father into his home is a grace of God in this life, and it is taken up as God's role in heaven. Now, I love my dad. He is and was a really good dad. But compared to God, he's a poor man's dad. You know what I mean? Like, God is your father protecting and caring and instructing and cultivating and nurturing and loving you. What need is there for you to have any other dad, any other father, any other protector? And God is your protector. I think ultimately, though, this leads to 
a better point on why there's no marriage, and that is everyone will be able to be trusted, depended upon, and held close, so much so that a spouse is an unnecessary commitment. In this life, one of the sweetnesses of marriage is that we say things like this, for better or, I want you to think about that in heaven, for better or, for better or better, for richer or richer, in life or in life, like the whole marriage covenant, the sweetness of it is it anchors us to another sinner where we say, I will not stop loving you. I will not stop loving you when, when wrinkles come and death's shadow gets long. I will not stop loving you when you struggle to overcome the sins that hurt my soul. I will keep your secrets and I will keep you, your, your, your reputation strong even though you hurt me in private. Right? The person who probably has done the most pain to you as a human being is your spouse because they have access to you like no other. And it probably grieves their soul too. And one of the hard things about marriage is we're sinners. We can't not sin. And so as sweet as marriage is, the beauty of it in a broken world where we are all incapable of being what God wants us to be is that marriage at its best is still two sinners saying I do. And maybe if we thought of it this way, for some, especially, um, especially those who have good marriages, you may look at the loss of marriage in heaven as a loss, right? But I would say this, that marriage is, is it's a little taste of heaven when it's going right. Where that safety of relational closeness, the sweetness of good friendship, the ability to share burdens and know that weaknesses won't be exposed to the world's observations. To, to know that you have a sacred friend that will always love you. That is like stale bread from the Dale Bakery compared to heaven's everyday friendships. Why would you ever only want to share that sweetness of friendship with one when every citizen of heaven could be like that with you marriage is intended to point you to heaven the sample is meant to lead you to want the real thing not to leave you in front of the sample table eating heaven is so good Marriage is inconsequential and unimportant and not even desirable in heaven. I realize for some of you that you're just going, I cannot see how that is true. Some of you are thinking, I can't wait for heaven. <laughs> I know you all took that in a way I didn't mean it. <laughs> I was afraid that if I said, Heaven is better than marriage. I would get some strong amens out there and some elbows given by a spouse. But this is the power of God in play. That is that he makes us the type of person that is such a sweet friend 
that we are better than the best friend on this earth. That our relationship in the context of community is so rich and satisfying that the idea of marriage loses its sweetness because God has unleashed that type of friendship on the whole community with one another. Now, I don't think as, as not infinite beings that we will have that type of friendship with everybody, but the point is your capacity to be that friend and to find those friends within heaven is only limited by your presence and ability to be friends. I want to take you really quickly over to 1 Corinthians 15 because it's not just about relationships. It's also about this new body that he's given us. What does God do in the resurrection from the dead? He gives us the type of body that is equipped for heaven forever. He tells us in verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15, Brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. He's telling us all that we're not going to be permitted into heaven the way we are. This might not land well as an analogy, but this is like you wanting to go to a Rams game and realizing you have to have a vaccine card, and they say, no, 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 you're not allowed. You don't have it. If you wanted to waltz into heaven right now, you are not allowed because of the way God has allowed sin into this world, how it's corrupted your body. You are a perishable human being. You are not fit for heaven. But God will change his people. I want you to come further down to verse 42. I guess further back, verse 42. The resurrection of the dead, here's what happens. What is sown is perishable what is raised is imperishable what can't inherit heaven is what's perishable we're some of you know really well that you're you're inheriting or you have a a perishable body i found a gray hair this week it's coming actually maybe it's going i don't know where my hair is doing but i'm just saying i'm getting old right it's 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 happening As you live in this world, the decay of this world, the sin of this world, the consequences of this world, way down on our shoulders, our hearts get tired, our bodies wear out, and at some point we're laid in the grave. We are perishable. Verse 42, we're sown perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. There will be no cosmetic youth industry in heaven. Right? Like, no one is getting wrinkles removed because you're imperishable. You will not experience the fatigue and the failure and the sorrows of age that cause your body and your spirit to wear out. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. The point of dishonor is humble and low. And God is going to seed us so that we reign with him in heavenly places. We are not even janitors in terms of rank right now compared to what we will be in heaven. God raises us and seats us to be co-regents with Jesus. That's incredible glory. You know, like every once in a while, you're in your workplace and you see someone get a promotion and everyone going, wow, 
how did he get that promotion? Like, is he the boss's nephew? What is happening here? The promotion of heaven is so massive that the only thing to explain it is the power of God himself. To establish the people of this earth who believe in his son as co-rulers with Christ is an unimaginable glory and honor. And it's ours forever. Continue on. Verse 43. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness and raised in power. Some of you feel the weaknesses of your body. You end the day exhausted and tired. And you wake up still tired. You feel the, the energy to do what you need to do just disappears when you start doing it. Some of you have physical afflictions. I was speaking to a man just recently who's struggling with rheumatoid arthritis. He's on disability. He just breaks his ability to get up and face the day and work hard. And as a man who has to care for his family and provide for the needs, you can imagine what that does to his soul. Our bodies make us suffer. They don't excuse sin, but they make us suffer. And often, our response is sinful. When we get to heaven, your body will never be an avenue of suffering. Your physical strength and power will never diminish in the sense of health and vitality. You will be forever strong in the sense of health and power to accomplish what God has called you to do. This is the promise of heaven. This is the promise of the resurrection. This happens not because of how good you are or how successful you are or how many vitamins you eat in this life. This happens because and only because God is powerful. So you want to know what heaven is like? I think words fail to describe how good heaven is. But in this life, in marriage, in the sweetness of good fellowship with Christian friends, where sin is being subdued and people are pursuing the glory of the Lord, we get little samples, little glimpses of the goodness of heaven. And you probably have a memory filled with them. Maybe as you look back over the course of the last few years and you see family events where you were all together having fun, as you look back on the birth of a child, as you remember an anniversary or a wedding day, and your heart has that nostalgic affection of goodness. That will be the joy of every citizen of heaven forever. But not only is that the problem with the Sadducees, that they have no understanding of the power of God to make heaven glorious and good and to shape our bodies for it, but they misunderstand the scriptures themselves. If you go back to Matthew 22, Jesus has already told them that they don't understand the power of God, and I think that specifically is driving us to understand that the work of making us fit for heaven is God's power at play. But not only that, God is king, if you look in the second part, or maybe I could say God is God. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. That's why I said king. So you can do whatever you want with your notes. Look at verse 31. He says, As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? Can I just like rabbit trail for just a moment? It's an incredible statement about Scripture itself. Don't miss this. Like put a little star here, underline it right in there, bibliology. 
Like, this is a theology of the Bible at play. Jesus is talking about the Old Testament passage in Exodus 3 with the burning bush. How does he describe it to the people that are asking him these questions? Have you not read what God said to you, people that are living 1,400 years after this event, God is speaking to you. What does that mean when we read the scriptures? God isn't just speaking, he's speaking to you. If you ever get to the place where you are dry and thirsty for the presence of God and you want to hear his voice, read the scriptures. God is speaking to you. Okay, back to our regular scheduled programming here. Jesus makes a point as, as he's interacting with them about the burning bush incident in scripture in Exodus 3. God says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Now, I can tell you, until I came to this text, having grown up on the stories of the Old Testament and hearing the story of the burning bush, I never once read the story of the burning bush and thought, oh my goodness, Jesus just proved the resurrection. Matter of fact, I, I would bet most of you, if you read Exodus 3 and I said, did you see the resurrection there? You would say, no. There's no resurrection in Exodus 3. So what is Jesus trying to tell us? What is missed by the Sadducees? They don't get it. They've read that story. They know their Old Testament. In fact, the Sadducees' focus and love was those first five books of the Bible. The rest of the Old Testament was just kind of, yeah. Those were, that's what their happy place was. And they've missed it. Okay, so here's the point. God is God over these people, speaks to his relationship with them as their God. We think of God as a position. Like people ask me, oh, Mark, who are you? My first response would be, that's a weird question. My second one would be, I'm a pastor. I like people say, like, so, so who are you? Tell me a little bit about yourself. We usually don't just start with, like, well, I'm a human being. We, we, we don't tell them who we are in terms of, like, what makes us up, our essence. We, we talk about what we, what we do. So, so when we have this question, like, who is God? We think position. He's the creator of the universe. He is the one who is infinitely in time, eternal, infinite in presence and power, infinite in all ways that are good. He is the eternal God. But the point of this text isn't who he is like that. It is how does he relate to his people. He relates to them as God. Maybe if someone were to ask me, Mark, who are you? And I would say, husband to charity. All of a sudden you're like, oh, okay, there's, there's someone else I should meet. Mark's connection to another human being is, is given in the phrase husband. The point here with God is God is related as Lord, as God, over someone else. Who is the someone else? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are mentioned. Now, the years in which Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived would have been something like 2000 B.C. to, let's say, 1500 B.C. at the, the way farthest range, but probably much closer to 2000. Moses lives in the 1400s. Where are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? 
They're worm food, right? They're dead. But are they dead? Well, the point is this. If I said, I am a husband to charity, what would you assume about charity? Why would you go make assumptions like that? Because that's how relationships work. That's how interactions work with people. When I say I am husband to her, it shows relationship and it shows dynamic. If I said I'm husband to the rocks outside, you'd be like, wait, what? Husband too? That doesn't even make sense. Maybe use the technical word husband like caretaker. Oh, so you're a gardener. No. When I say husband to charity, I mean I care for her and she's alive to be cared for. Now the point of of this text then should be becoming clear. That when God says, I am God for them, what does it mean about them? They are still his people, interacting with his godhood, interacting as subjects under his deity, obeying him, worshiping him, praising him, honoring him, and interacting with him because that's how you interact with someone who is your God. When he says this, he's actually using uh, somewhat what I would say is covenantal terms. We go to the Old Testament. The way God relates with his people is the way kings used to relate to their people. He basically tells Israel, I will care for you. I will watch over you. I will protect you. Your obligation is to obey me and honor me. If you obey me and honor me, I will guard you from other nations. I will protect you. I will bless you and strengthen you as a nation, and you will prosper under my kingship. In fact, when Israel asked to be a king, and Samuel's angry, God says, they have not rejected you, they have rejected me as king over them. Because God is their God. And they relate to him in ways analogous to the way people relate to a king. If you don't obey my commands, God says, both in Deuteronomy and in Exodus, then I will not protect you from other nations. They will come and take you captive. They will enslave you. and You will suffer. Your crops won't grow. And the land will be sterile. And your homes will be empty of the sound of children. Honor me as God. So when the burning bush episode happens and God says, I am their God, he very much means I am living in dynamic relationship with them, caring for, protecting, shepherding, loving, instructing, and doing good to my people. And my people look to me as God. They worship me, they love me, they praise me, and they live for me. Which means they're what? Do dead people serve and worship? Do they praise? Do they speak? Do they pray? So what is the assumption of the burning bush? Where are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Wherever they be, they're engaged in relationship with God. They're speaking to him. They're worshiping him. They're praising him. They are in dynamic relationship with God even in the afterlife. Now, this is the point. God is king over his people forever. It is not as though you can come under God's banner of blessing and grace and death death snatches you back. 
That's not the way this works. God is God over his people forever. And this is the blessed state of all those who name Christ as their king. Yet nothing, no matter what is coming in the future, not height or depth, nor things that are present or things that are coming, nothing, not even death itself, will ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he is God over his people forever. I'm going to take you to one last passage before we close this morning in John 10. Jesus uses not the example of the Old Testament, but just the example of being a shepherd. And he speaks of this eternal life, the idea that the believer will never perish. But I want you to see this dynamic relationship that happens both in the Old Testament with God is also consistent with the New Testament teaching on salvation. Look with me in verse 27. Scripture says, My sheep hear my voice. Okay, so what do God's people do? They listen to the voice of God and respond. They hear his voice. I know them. This is not a a declaration of God's omniscience where he knows about all things. This is a declaration of relationship. I relate to them and know personally who they are and they know me. I know them and they follow me. That's an obedience word. Right, the shepherd says, come here, little sheep. And what do the sheep do? They, they follow him. They come and follow the shepherd wherever the shepherd leads them. My sheep follow me. Coming back now, verse 28. As we look at the text, it says, I give them eternal life, which means they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So so when you look at what Jesus is saying, he is saying eternal life is the consequence of being my sheep. But my sheep are in vital relationship with me. They listen to me, they follow me, and I relate to them as real people relating to real people. God is not human, but he is personal. So we talk about the three persons of the Trinity because they relate and fellowship with us. The Holy Spirit is personal. And so he speaks to us through the word of God. He convicts us. He presses on our conscience and we sin against him. We grieve him. I want to get back to the point of God is king over his people forever and emphasize the reality that what Jesus Christ is teaching about the resurrection is that not only do we live forever in glorious eternal life, but we relate dynamically to God forever. Forever. Heaven is not a worship service where we directly sing praises to God all the time. It is nonstop worship in the sense that we live for God all the time, just like your life should be today. And so when you get up tomorrow morning in our home, there will be all sorts of chaos going on. My wife will be making sure that six kids get out of the house, relatively normally clothed and in their right minds, hopefully with lunches so they don't starve, 
or spend our money on school lunches. And all of this is going on. And, and if you're like my wife, that is not exactly the point where you go like, oh, motherhood is so good. That is the point where you're sitting there saying, what were we thinking? Why? Six. We could have stopped like at four. I would have kept my sanity. But that is a moment of worship as she serves God by making peanut butter and jelly because she loves her king. And as you get towards the end of the day, I, I think our rechargeable batteries don't charge like they used to anymore because by the end of the day, both my wife and I are like, man, I'm tired. What time is it? Six. Six? Oh. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else is there yet, or maybe some of you are like, oh, just wait, it'll be four soon. But life just sucks the energy out of you because you're serving and, and doing. That's worship. We should do that for the king. One of my deep concerns is that modern American Christianity has called people to make a profession of faith and say a prayer but there is no sense in which Jesus is your king when you're making peanut butter and jelly. My sheep, hear my voice and follow. Listen, if, if you think you are saved and that you have the hope of the resurrection, but you have no fellowship with God and you don't deeply care about what he says so that it changes your life, then the hope of the resurrection is probably a false hope. And it's not yours. If you do not follow Jesus today, you don't have the hope of following him in his heaven. If you follow Jesus because you love him and believe in him, that's a sign that he will be your God forever. And you will live with him forever in dynamic relationship and glorious life. This is the point that Jesus is preaching to the Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection. They doubt the future that's coming for God's people. Listen, if that's you and you live and don't think about the resurrection, when you hit your 6 p.m., you quit being a Christian. And your 6 p.m. might just be the fact that you have a job that is miserable and a boss who makes it worse. It might be the fact that you don't make a lot of money and so every day is just a grind to survive and love Jesus. God wants you to give these moments to him, to live for him, and there is rich reward in heaven. Live for heaven. Don't forget, heaven is coming. It is the real and certain hope all of God's people. So follow your shepherd. Strengthen the tired arms and the exhausted soul. Look to heaven. Heaven is coming for God's people. That's where we rest. That's where there are no naps needed. We might get them, but they're not needed. That is where the, the long hours where you want to quit and wave the white flag and say, I'm done, I give up. That's where it's worth it. In the life to come, God describes it as our Sabbath rest. Now, it's daylight. 
we work because rest is coming. Heaven is coming. Glory is coming. Our bodies will be imperishable. They will be made glorious like Christ. They will never die. They will be never touched by sin. They will be never touched by pain or suffering. There will be no cancers. There will be no hurt. Heaven is coming. It is real. Live for heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the hope that you give us through the words of Jesus Christ. There is warning here too. There might be people in this room who claim to know about God, claim to have said some words they call a prayer, but they have no sweet fellowship with Jesus Christ. They're not following the shepherd in any regular way. And they might simply be goats who've walked with the sheep for a few days and have confused themselves for sheep. Father, awaken in them a desire for Jesus Christ that he might be their king. Awaken within that person an awareness of sin that they might repent and be forgiven. Lord, I pray that you would sanctify our loyalty and love for Jesus Christ who died for us, who was raised for our transgressions, and who promises eternal life to all who come to him in faith, believing that he is the redeemer, the savior, and the rescue of our souls. Lord, help our church family to love Jesus every day of the week, to worship him with hearts that are filled with his worth and praiseworthiness and filled with gratitude for his work of redemption, who love him in the hard times. Lord, teach us to go to our Savior when we're ready to give up. Remind us that heaven is coming so that we don't waste today. Lord, help us to love you. Thank you so much for the five precious uh, souls who were baptized and the six who joined us. Lord, thank you so much for their confession of faith, the encouragement it was to us. Lord, protect them. You promised to be their shepherd, so we ask what you already promised to do. Protect them. Guide them. Feed them. Love them. So that with us they can walk by the green pastures and the still waters. So that even when death's shadow looms dark, they will not fear because you are with us. Lord, our cup is full to running over because of the blessings you've poured out on us through Christ. Help us. Help us to walk like him, to love him, and trust him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.